to get them approved. But I have a crazy job sometimes. Something crazy. So you never know when the moment's notice when the phone rings and you're liable to be out of town for two, three days or seven, ten days. So we had a leak in Launchville. And uh, unfortunately, I got stuck on night shift working 16 hour days. And I was one more night in the building. I'm talking beat down, battered. You've got homeowners coming at you. You've got a pipeline that's leaking. And you've got folks in Houston hollering to get this thing fixed and get it up and running. So, stress levels here. I would be upset too if I was a homeowner and somebody has got three track toes, a bulldozer, uh, and a hammer hole out there running, busting up rock in my backyard. So I'd be upset too. So I got to, I, I, I was a little bit stressed. And so I got home Wednesday, told Sally, I said, let's go. I'm getting out of town. I need some rest. <clears throat> so we're in Pigeon Forge. Uh, there's a creek right behind the hotel we're at. And Sally leaves out doing things. I'm getting a little memories. So everybody knows what Philippians 4.13 says. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. But there's two verses prior to that that hit home to Scott. Uh, because I know as a Christian, sometimes my relationship when Jesus Christ gets put back on a back burner, excuse my French man, but when all hell breaks loose. And I, I forget about what's going on actually with my relationship with Christ when you got everybody pulling at you. Get this done, get this done. But I think there's a slide up there. So Philippians. Not that I speak in respect of one. For I have learned in whatsoever state I am, therefore, to be content. So, Mike asked me, how's my week? I've learned to say that I have had a good week. But in honesty, Mike and T, I'm proud. It's a few folks that know about what's going on in Scott. But I had a son. I got a son. That I put through hell for brain surgery that started back having seizures. You know? So, as I'm sitting there on that creek bank, that verse come to me. So what I've learned in the last three days that no matter, Doc, what's going on or coming my way, be content. Because God's got me there for a reason. I don't know what it is. If I did, I don't know if I could do anything I can do about it. But I'm asking you. Don't ask much. I don't. But I'm asking you. Pray for that boy, man. He needs it. You know, most of you know, he's 19 years old today. Doctor said he'd never be past a 14 year old, which is cool, man. But I'd love for him to have a normal life. I'd love for him to be able to get a driver's license. I'd love for him to be able to go out on dates. But unless God intervenes, it's not going to happen. So later I learned to be content with what I got. I'm blessed beyond all measure. Got a great job. Love my job. Except for weeks like the past 10 days. <laughs> But I love it. <laughs> I work with great people. Christian folks. I have people that was, went on conference calls and 
They were telling us what all we need to do, and I got a great boss. He was up in there, I was up in there, and I said, stop, let's pray. God intervened. We found the leak, got the leak fixed, and I got home. I was miserable. I hated being away. I hated it. I didn't get to sleep in my own bed. You sleep in during the daytime. It ain't for me. So, I'm not asking for sin. I want you to understand that right now. I don't want it. I got a great family. All I'm asking is, when you go pray, pray not Scott's will, not Saturday's will, but pray that God's will will be done in Lee's life. Because I've learned to be content. I used to get mad at God. Why me? Why me? Why not that drunkard out there and his kid? Why not that dope head out there? I'm content where I'm at. I'm happy in knowing that my relationship with Jesus Christ can get me through. So let's sing about the wondrous story. Take me.
sweet to trust in Jesus. you to open to the book of First Peter chapter number 4. I'm going to be reading verses 7 through uh, you know, 7 through 10, really 7 through 11. So, if you would, please stand with the reading of God's Word. Peter writing here in 1 Peter 4, 7. The end of all things is near. Therefore, be of sound judgment and of sober mind, or sober, sober spirit, for the purpose of prayer. Above all, keep fervent in your love for one another because love covers a multitude of sins. Be hospitable to one another without complaint. As each one has received a special gift, employ it in serving one another as good stewards of the manifold grace of God. Whoever speaks is to do so as one who is speaking the utterances of God. Whoever serves is to do so as one who is serving by the strength which God supplies, so that in all things God may be glorified through Jesus Christ, to whom belongs the glory, the dominion forever and ever. Amen. You may be seated. So as I was reading this passage of Scripture this week, if you look through verses 7 through 11, you're going to see all things or in all things, and you're going to see it continually pop up. In, uh, in these passages here, and uh, it just stuck out to me. How many of you remember Mayberry? <laughs> How many of you remember Mayberry? I know I've got people that I've talked to, I think it probably Shani Kelly Foster said one of the reasons that they moved here is because this is like Mayberry, right? This is a place where you want your kids to be able to be raised. You're not worried too much. Uh, unless Thomas is doing some type of uh, dangerous trick on his skateboard where uh, you're really not going to worry too much about your kids, right? Mm -hmm. Running around the streets, going to and fro. 
So those of us who grew up, and I still like watching a little bit of the Andy Griffith show on, on television, you know, most of the time I imagine Mayberry and then I look at what really is Mayberry now. So when Mayberry was in the, in, of course, Andy Griffith, it's around 5,000 people. And I know you're like me. He's like, well, where are the 5,000, right? Because we, we never saw that many people on the Andy Griffith show, did we? We only saw a handful of people. But in actuality, that's the town that Mayberry was cast in. Mayberry, North Carolina, about 5,000 people. Of course, my, uh, my stories are your stories. If you've watched it, everyone was cordial. Uh, John Casey was waving at me, what he perceived to be me yesterday. And as they went by, uh, three people looked at him as though he was an alien. You know, but that's what I grew up with here in this town. And you still see that from time to time when you're driving. People will throw their, this finger up, not any other finger. <laughs> you throw this finger up, they'll nod their head, or they'll wave and say hey to you. That's just cordial. That is... What I remember and what I enjoy about small town, town life, you know, Andy didn't carry a gun as you think about, as you think about Mayberry. The only one that carried a, a gun was Barney and his bullet was kept in his pocket. And uh, so, you know, trouble from time to time as you watch some of the episodes, from time to time trouble did come to Mayberry. But by the end of the episode, trouble left, and we were back to the wonderful little town that we had at the beginning. Many people are moving into Tallapoosa because it is like Mayberry in the 1960s. It still is to a certain degree. However, I want to go bring you into the 21st century. How many of you have uh, done any research on Mayberry today, Mayberry, North Carolina today? The Mayberry of the twenty of the two thousands is a very different place than was pictured on the Andy Griffith show. In two thousand seven, Mayberry had a population of ten thousand people, and crime was almost double the national average. Most crimes were theft, burglary, and assaults. What happened to Mayberry? Well, it changed. The people changed. In the early 2000s, people representing the federal government gave the following statistics. Eighth graders, and this is dated material. This is probably 20 years old, uh, this, this information that I'm reading. Eighth graders in rural America are 104% likelier than those in urban centers to use amphetamines, including methamphetamines, and 50% likelier to use cocaine. Eighth graders in our rural areas are also 83% likelier to use crack cocaine and 34% likelier to smoke marijuana than eighth graders in urban centers. Bluntly put, meth has come to Main Street along with other prescription drugs with a magnum force aimed at our children. We've long heard the warning and we're trying to reach beyond the cities to the suburbs and rural areas to see the reach of drugs across America. That was 20 years ago. That's what the federal government was saying about the rural areas. You know, and as I think about our small town, as I look in the schools and I see what our children, the homes that they represent, and I see the continued use of uh, vapes and things of that nature as though it's not going to be affect our, our children's health. You know, as I look at our, our town, it has changed. It's not the Tallapoosa that I grew up in. It's, in all purposes it is, but the, the fabric has changed somewhat even when you were raising your children, MJ. The fabric has changed since you were raising your children, Annie Shane. The fabric has changed. It's not the Mayberry that we grew up in. It's not the Mayberry that I remember. There are stories and that I walk along the streets and I see the, the history of Tallapoosa that represents my family, my grandparents. They were part of Tallapoosa back in the early 30s and 40s and 50s and 60s. 
I remember those things and I remember those days. And I remember my mother telling me stories about growing up over on across uh, Stone Mountain Street, which is across the railroad tracks, going to the cotton mill and her throwing rocks at Denver Morgan and their family across the street. I told her she needed that. She didn't hit Denver enough. <laughs> For the, how many of y'all know Denver Morgan? He need to be hit a couple more times with a rock from my mama specifically. But at any rate, as I think about how times have changed, I want to uh, ask this question. How many of you believe we open this passage of Scripture, Paul or Peter writing here, he's writing to uh, this church that he has established and his recipients, Peter is writing, he says, the end of all things is near. How many of you believe that the end is near? How many of you believe the end is near? Does your living suggest what you believe? Does how you live your life, is it, is it representative of what you believe that the end is almost near? Do your interactions with people align with what you believe? Peter wrote this letter only a few decades after the death and resurrection of Jesus. Probably within uh, 30 years of Jesus' uh, death, burial, and resurrection, Peter is writing this book to a group of people. 30 years removed, he is writing, uh, above all, the end of all things is near. So there are people who... Peter is writing to, there's a group of people who probably believe that Jesus was, his, his time of his uh, second coming was very close. And then even 30 years removed, there was a group of people who thought, nah, that's on down the road. You know, these people, their lives were impacted by what they had seen and heard, particularly Simon Peter. We're talking about the disciple who denied Jesus. We're talking about the disciple who was went a-fishing after Jesus had died. And it's the only thing he knew to do. The other disciples asked him a question. So what are you going to do? He looks at them and he says, I'm going back to fishing. This is what I'm going back. This is what I'm good at. I'm going back to what I started before this man came up and gave us all this hope. I'm going fishing. It was the same Simon Peter as he was fishing that Jesus was on the shore of the Sea of Galilee and he called to the disciples. And he had this... This, this feast prepared before them. And as they got close to the shore, Simon recognized it as being Jesus. This man had seen, he had witnessed, he had heard what Jesus spoke and he had seen the power of Jesus. So he is writing. He is writing to a group of people in a church that he has established. And he is telling them of this power that Jesus' coming is near. Many of their lives had been, were impacted by what they had heard and seen, or at least by what others had heard and seen. Therefore, they were constantly living as though this day were their last day. Was the last day that they would be on the planet of the earth. That is how many people in the first century lived. They were constantly impacting the, those lives around them because of what they believed. They believed what Peter was writing here, the end of all things is near. And they adjusted their life and they lived as though Christ had come back at any moment. So their, their interactions were more powerful. They testified of who Jesus was and what He did and that He was coming again. Yet there were others to whom Peter was writing who were not expecting the return of Jesus. Even though they were living in the shadow of the death of the resurrection of Jesus some 30 years later, these people did not believe that the end of all things was near. And how their lives interacted with others certainly reflected that, what they believed. One thousand nine hundred and ninety-two years later, not much has changed, has it? 
Not much has changed since Peter wrote this letter. There are those who believe and there are those who do not believe that the end is near. There are those who allow their beliefs to impact how they live and all their interactions that they are engaged with each day. And then there are those who live life on their own terms. The content of this letter that Peter is writing remains just as applicable today as it was the day that it was first written. Listen to the emphasis that he writes, that he places upon it when he writes this phrase. Listen listen to it. The end of all things is near. Do you feel the emphasis upon what he is saying? The end of all things is near. You know, in the writing of this, uh, from verses 7 through 11, I want to talk about first the purposeful dependence upon God. Purposeful dependence upon God. He says, The end of all things is near, therefore be of sound judgment and be sober in spirit for the purpose of prayer. The purpose of prayer was what he was wanting them to do. He was wanting them to be a people who prayed. He was wanting them to be a people who was connected to the Lord, not just through their beliefs, but through how they believed. And their belief was in action in how they prayed. His concern with the prayers and the conduct of his readers. His realizing that the end is near and that can lead to many different responses. Some make quick decisions based upon what they believe. And some are intoxicated with the seriousness of the times in which they live. Peter wants the church and those who belong to it to use sound judgment and have a sober spirit. How many of you watched the movie Armageddon with Bruce Willis? So one of my favorite parts of this movie, one of my favorite parts of this movie is at the end, uh, you've got this group of oil, oil well diggers. Not pipeliners, but they're probably about the same, same kind of people. Scott, I'm just, I'm just guessing. A group of oil well diggers are picked by NASA to destroy an asteroid that is heading toward a cataclysmic collision with Earth. Before these men launched up in two different spaceships, one of the crew, played by Steve Bashimi, I think that's the way you pronounce his name. Y'all remembering this? He goes and he, he because of the uncertainty and the, the reality of what he believed is that it's over with for earth. What he did, he went out and he borrowed an, an untold amount of money and he went and he spent it all in Las Vegas. Y'all remember that? Y'all remember that in the story? In the storyline? I mean, he's the same person that sat up on the nuclear warhead and was like, what a ride this is going to be. You remember that? It's that character. As I think about what Peter is writing here, he's wanting us to be of sober, sober spirit and of sound judgment. What Peter is really saying is that people should depend upon God and that such dependence is revealed through how one approaches prayer. And that is through sound judgment and a sober spirit. You know, with our current application of this, as I look across halfway around the world, our dependence should rest upon God alone. Does it mean because there's wars breaking out half a world away that we should go borrow an unsung told amount of money that we're never going to have to pay back because the Lord's going to come between now and then? It's kind of ludicrous, isn't it? And I know that's an extreme example, but God wants us to be of sound judgment in these end times. And as the time draws near, And He certainly doesn't want us to become so intoxicated by the news reports that are coming all around the globe that we forget that He is still in control. I think you said that last weekend, Jay. He is still on the throne. Let us us enter each day as though it is our last with the promise that if it is our last, whether whether Jesus comes or we die before He comes, That we live 
with sound judgment and sober spirit that He alone is still on the throne and that He alone is still in control. Not only does Peter tell the, his, his readers to be of sound judgment and sober of spirit, not being intoxicated upon the things of the world, the news. He also goes down in verse number 9. So we've got this purposeful, purposeful, purposeful dependence upon God. We also have this purposeful conduct toward one another in verse number 9 that He is wanting His people uh, to... In verse 8 and 9, that he is wanting and teaching them. Look at verse number 8 and 9. He says, Above all, keep fervent in your love for one another, because love covers a multitude of sins. Be hospitable to one another without complaint. Now, uh, above all, above all things, <laughs> these all things coming in once again. The end of all things is near. Above all the things that are going on in your life. Above all the things that you are doing. Above all these things. Rest assured that Jesus is still in control. But also, He, he teaches us to be fervent in our love one toward another. Be fervent in our love one to another. And in all things, be hospitable without complaint. Now this word love in verse number 8, I want to talk about it for just a moment because the Greek term really doesn't capture, or the English term really doesn't capture what the Greek terminology is and how he, Peter is utilizing this Greek term. What type of love ought Christians to love one another or with what type of love ought Christians to love one another? The Greek term here suggests that Peter is using suggests that a type of the type of love that Peter is referring to is a love that is at full stretch. Now it's an interesting concept. It's an interesting concept to think of love as this this type of elasticity that that stretches and stretches even more and that at its fullness it is stretched as far as it will go. But this is the type of love that Peter is referring to. A love that will extend a full stretch. So in my mind, I began to think, well, why love at full stretch? Why not a half stretch? Why not an inch of a stretch, right? Because you know as well as I do, there are people, there are people in your life each and every day that you want to look at them and say, Jesus loves you and I'm trying, but you're making it difficult, Right? Come on, that's worth an amen right there. <laughs> I mean, it's true. It may be a spouse. It may be a, a child. You're one of your kids. It may be a colleague. It may be a supervisor. Uh, not mine. She's sitting here. She's awesome. <laughs> but at any rate, you know what I'm saying? There are those people and you're like, what type of love? Why a full stretch? So how long have you gone to church with the same people? How long have you gone to church with the same people? Any relationship, whether it is in a church relationship or whether it is a home relationship or whether it is a basketball relationship, a football relationship, a baseball relationship, a soccer relationship with the people. I mean, there's somebody going to do something that just really gets under your skin. Gonna, I mean, there's people that are going to do that. They, some of them may not mean to, others may. But I mean, you know, that there's, whether it's in church or at home, our love, our type of love that we have for each other, this God type of love, is going to continually be stretched. The question is, will we allow it to be stretched to the full? Now, for many, the stretch of love is too much to ask. This stretch of love that, that Peter is asking us for, that he is encouraging people for, we look and we say, you know what, I can only love you this much. I'm not going to stretch anymore. And we see it continually in our times, in our relationships, in the relationships with those around us. 
For many, the stretch of love is simply just too much to ask. So they divorce themselves from each other or they divorce themselves from congregations. But what Peter is driving home here is specifically identifying that the love of Christ is a love that exhibits a full stretch. Are you loving others with that full stretch? With a love that will stretch full? The other part of verse, uh, going on and down into verse number 9, he also talks about, Peter does, this idea of hospitality. Now the first century church, they had no buildings. So they met physically in the homes of people that were in, in a specific community. So every Sunday or every Saturday as it would be, or it could be at any point in time during the week, whether Jesus was coming or whichever time the church met, people would come over to the to, to other people's homes. Many times they would travel from a, a pretty good distance, so you would have to open up your house and provide them not only a meal, but you'd also have to provide them a place to sleep. Now, uh, we have these wonderful buildings that we have here, but you know, Peter is, is placing emphasis for his readers upon this hospitality, which meant preparing meals, which meant preparing a room to stay without grumbling. Okay, I have to put that. That is Scripture. I want you to look at that. He goes on in verse number 8. Be hospitable to one another without complaint or without grumbling. How many of you like having spontaneous guests? How many of you love having spontaneous guests? Come on, let's get down and real this morning. How many of you love having people just pop up and say, hey, I want to stay with you tonight? Huh? Huh? Nobody likes that. You know why? Because your house is a mess. My house is a mess. You got time to clean it up. But if you knew they were, if you knew people were coming over, you'd be cleaning. And then at some point in time, how many of you would be grumbling? People coming over, I'm having to clean up my house. I'm just gonna make it a mess. I'm going to clean it over. All that everyone say, once they leave, huh? Yeah. Isn't that what we do? Isn't that our humanity? Yeah. Huh? Isn't that our humanity? We're not just grumbling all the time. How many of you have grumbled about someone this week? Thank you for your honesty, John Casey. Because the truth of the matter is, so have I. How many of you have grumbled about coming to church? How many of you have grumbled about someone at church? How many of you have grumbled because someone unexpectedly was a guest in your home, at church, or wherever? They just pop up and they demand your attention. It could be in the grocery line and you're, you're in a, you got a thousand places to go and you haven't seen this person. And here they pop up on the scene. And the last thing you want to do is spend how much ever amount of time because you got things to do. This being hospitable has to extend beyond what we do here at church or even in our homes. It has to apply to all aspects of our lives. Being hospitable to one another without complaining, without grumbling. Peter reminds us that our hospitality is connected to the way we love at full stretch. These two ideas are connected intricately together. When we do not love at full stretch, our hospitality toward others will always be damaged. And Lord knows how much damage we've done because we're not willing to love at full stretch. God has placed people right there in front of us and it may cost us 30 minutes, an hour or longer out of our planned schedule. But have we ever thought why this person is here right now? Do we truly believe that the, 
that the, that the end is near and that God is in control of all things, even by putting people into our path on a daily basis? Or do we just say, nope, I've got to go. Hey, good to see you. Got to run. I got this, this, this to do. You get in the car. Lord, have mercy. I sure am glad I got away from that one. You know, that's... There are people in my life that I... Yes, I do that. We all do that. We might as well just confess that sin to Jesus and learn how we can be better and not be that type of person and be the type of person who believes that the, that the end of times is near and that we allow that nearness of, of Jesus' return to, to affect how we interact with everyone with a love that full stretch. You know, what would, have been, what, would, what would it have been like? I got too fast there. What would it have been like if Jesus would have said at the Garden of Gethsemane, I don't want to die for these people. They're not even grateful. You know, the first sign of a love and hospitality that lacks a full stretch is through our grumbling. So when we start grumbling, we need to remind each other, hey, 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 watch out. We, we, need, we, need to, we need to check that. So let me ask, how have you grumbled this week? Recognizing that I have myself. If we truly love one another, this love will stretch fully without any grumbling. If you've been grumbling, let me remind that there is only one person who can change your heart or the other person's heart. There are people that just really get on your nerves. And there are people out there, let's just be honest, there are people out there who just get on my nerves, right? Get under my skin. But I can't change them. I can't assume it's my responsibility to change them. But what I can assume is to Love as Jesus loves them and allow Him to change them. I can draw boundaries around myself so I don't always be just bombarded with, these, with this type of person that really gets on my nerves so that they know the boundaries that I'm trying to live a healthy life and I don't always just want you to come in and take my time. You understand what I'm saying? Instead of grumbling with an intoxicated spirit, we should pray for the one for one another and not rush to judgment. The next thing I want you to look at, verse number 10. Verse number 10, Peter is also writing here the purposeful use of gifts. The purposeful use of gifts. He says, as each one has received a special gift, employ it in serving one another as good stewards of the manifold grace of God. Did you know that everyone here this morning has received a special gift from God? Here's a small list of some spiritual gifts. Administration, discernment, evangelism, exhortation, faith giving, healing helps, hospitality, which everybody should have based upon this passage of Scripture, knowledge, leadership, mercy, prophecy, music, singing, serving, wisdom, and we could go on and on and on question is, how has God gifted you? I believe that God has chosen specific people to place in this church, to lead to this church for a specific purpose so that their gifts and talents may be utilized here to build up the body so that we can minister effectively in our community and efficiently in our community. My question is, well, it's not really a question, but in all the, all, the, all the list of spiritual gifts that I have ever read through, and you can read through many, this is what I've never found. I've never found watching and listening being spiritual gifts. I've never seen that anywhere. Well, y'all just, I'm giving you the spirit of watching. I'm giving you the spirit of listening. He's given us all the, the, the gift of watching and listening because He's given us eyes and ears. The question is, it's not a spiritual gift. It's a physical gift. There's nothing spiritual about watching and listening. But that is what the majority of Christians utilize most. Yep, that was a good sermon today. 
I've had countless people come and tell me, you need to listen to this podcast. I'll go listen to the podcast and it never goes beyond listening. Never goes beyond listening to a podcast. Never goes beyond listening to a sermon. To personal application as to how that scripture, how that sermon should apply to your life so that your spiritual gifts may be stirred up and utilized and your life be transformed and those around you to be transformed so that Jesus may be glorified, God may be glorified. So how many of you know what your spiritual gift is? Do you know how God has gifted you spiritually? If you don't, I want you to. There are many ways that you can find out. There are many spiritual gifts, inventories that you can do on the internet that are free. I encourage you to do that. Lastly, in 1 Peter 4, 11, in all things, I want you to realize that we started with the end of all things is near. We're going to end in verse number 11. We're going to end with all things, in all things. If you look there, specifically in the latter latter part of verse 11, in all things, God may be glorified. So I want to look at this verse 11. In all things, we end this sermon. Whoever speaks, speak the utterances of God. Whoever serves, serves by the strength of God. Why do we speak and why do we serve? We speak with the utterance of God. We speak in the power of God. We serve in the strength of God. We serve in the power of God. Why? Why do we do that? So that in all things, all things, in our speaking, in in our doing, in in our serving, we do all these things so that God may be glorified through Jesus Christ. In all the things you do, whether in church or outside the church, let all your actions glorify God through Jesus Christ. When you speak, what do you speak? When you serve, how do you serve? How does your speaking and your serving reflect your belief that the end of all things is near? So that in all things, you will give glory to God. Robin, as you come, Scott, as we step up, as you are turning to page 275, that's the wrong one. What, what page we turn to? Nothing but the blood. You know, the greatest danger for people of a small town is a small town church who minimizes what it means to follow Jesus. When followers of Jesus do not love at full stretch, when we begin to shrink back, Jesus becomes minimized in our towns. And other things become full stretched so that our kids and our families go to other things. When the followers of Jesus do not love at full stretch, the followers are no different from the world who loves to judge. Well, I'm only going to love you if you do this, 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 and this. I'm only going to love you if you look like this, 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 and this. When the followers of Jesus do not show hospitality, the followers tell others that they are not important. So what happens to a small town where the people attending the small town church grumble more than they serve others? What happens to a small town like that? You have children. More likely than in the rural or in the urban centers of our nation. You have children in small towns, families in small towns to be broken. Children in small towns to become more addicted to the drugs than children in a large urban area. You know, Jesus is minimized in the strength of the small town church begins to unravel when we do not love at full stretch. When we are not hospitable without grumbling. That it's an expectation that we wake up each morning, Lord, who are you going to place in my life today that I might be hospitable to for the sake of the glory of the cross? 
We're living in a time when the unraveling of small town America is happening before our eyes. The small town needs Jesus. The small town needs people who will love them, who will serve them, and who will show hospitality in a way that brings God the glory through Jesus Christ. So my question this morning is simply, will we be that type of person? Will we be that church who loves at full stretch so that God may get all the glory and that our city might know Jesus? I invite you to come as we sing nothing but the blood, Scott. What can wash away my sin? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. What can make me whole again? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. Oh, precious is thy blood that makes me white as snow. No. Jesus.